Well, as you settle in, I want to begin by asking you a very important question. How many of you are ready for Christmas? <laughs> Anybody ready? Looking forward to it or, or, or ready? Like have your home ready and everything. Decorations, okay. And uh, well, whether you are or you're not, I'm sure all of us have Christmas on the brain this time of year because unless uh, you don't have eyes to see and ears to hear, everywhere you turn, you are reminded of it, right? We are reminded that uh, Christmas is coming. I thought it would be a good time because that's the case in the middle of November to begin our series through the Gospel of Luke. As you, many of you know, Luke begins his story shortly before the birth of Jesus and gives us detailed a detailed account of his early life. And so we're going to, up until Christmas time, we are going to study the events surrounding the birth of Jesus. And then we're going to take a little bit of a break. And then when we come back from Christmas and New Year's, we're going to continue through the Gospel of Luke and, until we finish. And uh, for those of you wondering when that will be, just think our study through Acts took two years, all right? So that should give you a little idea on uh, how long we're going to be camping out in the Gospel of Luke. But before we jump in to the book today, let me uh, give a bit of background on the book of Luke. This will help you in our sermon for today and in the ones to come. First, let's talk about the author. Surprise, surprise, Luke wrote Luke. All right? Luke wrote the book, though not mentioned directly. We know the one who wrote Acts wrote Luke because they're similar in style. They're both addressed to this man named Theophilus. In Acts, you have the we passages where the individual makes it known that he is a traveling companion of Paul's. We knew that we know that uh, Luke was a traveling companion of Paul. He never includes himself in the narrative in Luke because Luke was not one of the eyewitnesses. He had connections to the eyewitnesses, which we'll, we'll learn about. Those in the early church were all in agreement that uh, Luke authored Luke, Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, Tertullian, and the ancient Christian historian Eusebius were all in agreement that Luke authored both the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. A little more about Luke. Luke is the largest book in the New Testament. Though fewer chapters than the book of Acts, it contains more verses. We'll learn that in chapter 1, right? We're going to be in chapter 1 for a few weeks. Uh, those two books alone combined make uh, Luke, it, he's written more than the other writers in the New Testament just with those two books alone, more than Paul and, and more than John. Luke was a secondary figure in the scriptures, unlike Matthew and John, who wrote the two of the other four Gospels. Luke was not one of the original twelve. He was a Gentile, and he was a physician. As Paul closes out his letter to the Colossians, he makes mention of this. He says, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you. 
So Luke was a physician, highly educated, probably one of the most intelligent of the writers in the New Testament. His two books, Luke and Acts, are considered by many Greek scholars to be the best Greek grammatically in the New Testament. Now, that doesn't call into question the other writers of the New Testament. When we talk about inerrancy, we're not talking about grammatically. We know that God spoke the words, his words, through these writers, and he used their own personalities, their own education, educational backgrounds to uh, write through these writers to inspire the words that they wrote. So, so uh, Luke is is highly intelligent. Okay, many scholars today are impressed with the historical precision in which Luke wrote. So, in addition to being a, a, a gifted Greek scholar and uh, also a physician. Luke was a historian. He was a very smart guy. All right, so that's who wrote it. Let's talk about who he's writing to. The book of Acts and Luke each are dedicated to a man by the name of Theophilus. And no Theophilus is only mentioned at the beginning of both books. Many believe that Theophilus was a close friend of Luke's. Some say he was probably a Gentile convert to Christianity who probably wanted more information about who Jesus was, what he accomplished during his earthly ministry. So Luke dedicates both books to him. But he and, of course, God, who is ultimately responsible for writing this book, they have a bigger audience in mind, and it's bigger than just the Jewish people. Luke is also writing to a Gentile audience, which should not surprise us because he is non-Jewish. The date of the book. Now, neither Luke or Acts mention the fall of Jerusalem and, and a lot of scholars, they use that to help date these books because that was a big event in Jewish history. If it had happened, Luke would have probably mentioned it. That happened in A.D. 70. So the fact that it's not mentioned shows those uh, trying to determine the date that Luke was writing before that period of time. He mentions an event at the end of Acts that is dated around 62. So for that reason, many date Luke and Acts believed to have been written back to back at the first of the uh, 60s, the early 60s in the first century, probably around 61. Okay, So that's the date, type of book. This is one of four gospel books. Reason for writing. Luke is writing this book to Jews and Gentiles alike to show that Jesus is the Savior of the world. He is the Savior of the world, and that is the title of this sermon series. Jesus is the perfect God-man who came to save all who trust in him alone for salvation, both Jew and Gentile alike. And, and this book is about his person and his teachings and his work, who Jesus is, why he came, what he said, and what he accomplished. We'll learn from Luke that Jesus is God the Son, who took on flesh, who lived and died and rose again to accomplish salvation for all who trust in him. 
So that's the reason for writing. Few unique things about the book of Luke. One, it's part one of two, all right? Luke and Acts, that makes it unique. Only in Luke's account do we have this detailed story of the events leading up to Christ's birth. And also we have some stories from Jesus' childhood as well that make it unique. Were it not for Luke, we would not have the story of the Good Samaritan, the prodigal son, the rich man and Lazarus, and the story of Zacchaeus, and the salvation of the thief at Calvary. So aren't you thankful for Luke that we have those stories Here's a, uh, the next slide is just an outline of the uh, book of Luke. You have this in your bulletin. Hang on to that. Mark the uh, page where you are, where we are in our study. Keep that with you. That'll help you uh, track with us. Go to the next slide here, and I'll show you today, starting today, and in the weeks to come, we're going to be focusing in on this first section, Jesus' birth and early life from Luke chapter 1 and 2. Today we're going to be looking at Luke 1. If you're not there yet, get there quickly. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 25. And what we're going to see in this passage to begin is that Luke is going to show us several important things about the story of Jesus' birth. Several important things that I want to point out here. Notice first that he shows us from this opening passage that the story of Jesus' birth is a true story. That's point number one. The story of Jesus' birth is a true story. Look at Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Luke says this, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Verse 4, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Notice a few things here. First, notice the effort Luke took to write this book. We, we said a moment ago that, that Luke was not one of the original 12. He was not an apostle. He was a friend of Paul's, a faithful laborer in the Lord whom God chose to use to write this book. He was, he was not an eyewitness of the things he writes, but he has access to the eyewitnesses. He mentions that in, in verse 2. He had eyewitness. He had access to these eyewitnesses who delivered the details of the account that he gives here. So Luke is functioning in this book like a first century investigative reporter. Think of him in that way, okay? And he does an excellent job. Notice he speaks to credible eyewitnesses. If you want to get the truth, it's good to talk to credible people who saw how things went down, right? He went to credible eyewitnesses. Notice he says, ministers of the word. He, of course, is also carried along by the Holy Spirit as well. God is very much involved in this process. And through these encounters, by God's providence, 
Luke gives us details from the life of Christ. Details that the other gospel writers do not of events that took place before the conception of Jesus and the birth of John the Baptist and the birth of Jesus. And he also gives us an account of Jesus as a young child as well that we'll look at and and many others. Luke indicates here that he has followed these details very closely for some time before writing them down. Look at what Charles Swindoll said about it in his commentary on Luke. Look at this slide. Luke investigated everything carefully from the beginning and then arranged the facts in orderly sequence. His travels with Paul gave him unprecedented access to the who's who of Christian prehistory. And he, he assures us here that while there were a number, number of people at this time writing about Jesus, his is a trustworthy account based upon these credible eyewitness testimonies. Notice also in this passage that Luke states his purpose for writing this gospel. He says to Theophilus that he has written this orderly account so that Theophilus would know and have confidence in the things that God accomplished through his Messiah, his man, the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, I have written an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, verse 4, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. And, and notice what he says here in this passage to help Theophilus. Notice what, what he says to convince him. First, he appeals to the fact that these events, they took place in real time, in a real place in history. Luke says, I have followed the things I am about to report to you very closely for some time. And what I have done is I have written these things down, mentioning in great detail the time and the place in which they happened. He says, I have written an orderly account for you. Now, why does he make this point? Why mention this? Get this. Because Luke wants Theophilus and his greater audience to know that these events that he is about to talk about, the birth, the life, the death, the resurrection of Christ, they happened. They took place in a real time, in a real place in history. He tells Theophilus, God has accomplished these works among us. In other words, he says, these works that Christ has done, they, they have been accomplished in this generation, in our time. And Luke goes to great lengths to make this point. When telling about the birth of Jesus, Luke begins saying in verse 1 of chapter 2, In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Why mention that? Why, why mention Caesar Augustus? Why mention this event here? Why is this significant? Because Luke is showing that this is the time when Christ took on flesh. He, he shows us that during the rule of this historical leader, at the time when this historical decree was issued, Jesus entered into the world as one of us. 
Folks, this event happened in history. The Christmas story is a true story. It happened in a real place, in real time, in history. Some, when they hear about the Christmas story this time of year, they just sort of lump it in with, with other stories they hear at Christmas, like a Christmas carol, or twas the night before Christmas. They view it as a, as a myth, something fictional. No, listen, this story, it happened. This event, the incarnation, the miraculous conception, the virgin birth, it happened. It happened in history. Ligon Duncan said this of Luke's gospel. Look at this quote. He said, Luke's work of this gospel is not just a story. It's a true story. It contains history. Not only does Luke make this point, that this story is a true story because it happened in history, but he also stresses the fact that this story is true because it was witnessed by many. So it's true that it happened in history and it was witnessed by many. Look at verse 2 again. Luke says, Those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. So they're still around. You can go ask them. It says, Not only did these events happen in a real place in real time in history, but it was witnessed by all of these faithful ministers of the word who were making it known. They were there. They, they saw these things with their own eyes. Luke says there, there were men and women who witnessed Christ's birth, his life, his death, his resurrection. And he also tells Theophilus, he says, many of these eyewitnesses are out proclaiming these truths today. Wouldn't you love to have been there? Would have wanted to take a few of them to lunch. That's who Luke appeals to. He says, there are these sharp-minded, godly men and women out there who have seen and heard these things. He says, what I'm doing is simply reporting to you what I have heard. He says, this book is an account, a compilation of these testimonies from those who were there, who saw Jesus with their own eyes, felt him with their own hands, heard from him with their own ears. So this story, it's a true story. It happened. The second thing we learn about Jesus' birth from this opening passage is that the story of Jesus' birth is an unlikely story. It's an unlikely story. Look at verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Now, if you lived in this day, there is no doubt that you would have heard of Herod. He's the king. He's the king of Judea. But chances are good, unless you lived close by, worked with, or were related to one of them, chances are good you would not have known about Zechariah and his wife, Elizabeth. Now, upon hearing that, some of you may be thinking, well, he wasn't that insignificant, right? He was a priest. Well, this is where context is key. You see, in this day, priests like Zechariah were a dime a dozen. There were tons of priests. I read recently where there were more priests than there were tasks to perform. So Zechariah is one among many priests. But get this, there was only one king of Judea, and that's Herod. So his position, 
His notoriety far surpassed that of any priest. Many believed him to be far more important guy than Zechariah in this day, but not in God's economy. Not in God's story. Isn't it interesting how Luke just glosses by, he just breezes over Herod to center in upon this priest. In the story of Jesus, in the Christmas story, Herod is a pawn. Though he was the king, he was a pawn in the plan of God. But this unknown individual this unlikely priest this guy who was overlooked by most was god's chosen instrument and this is always the way that it is in god's kingdom folks do y'all realize that the world looks at people like you and me and says insignificant unimportant not worth mentioning am i right what what dominates the news in our world today the goings-on in Washington, certainly. Social status of celebrities in Hollywood, the lifestyles of the rich and famous. But do you know who's important to God? You know who he is concerned with? His faithful followers. He is concerned with the lifestyles of his children, the creator of all that is. He is concerned with those whom he has chosen as his instruments, those who are making him known and those who are advancing his kingdom though the world may view you and me as obscure and insignificant folks in god's economy kings are pawns and the unlikely are his chosen instruments that's very much the case with zechariah and elizabeth look at where we see this in the following verses we see they play a very very important role in this story Notice first that there was a timely appearance. A timely appearance. Look at verses 6 through 12. And they, Zechariah and Elizabeth, were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. So notice, both good godly people, right? Faithful to the Lord, yet childless. God's people aren't exempt from hardship, are they? We see that all throughout Scripture, as many of you know. Let's keep reading. Verse 8. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord. Now, that doesn't happen every day. I just want to let you know that, okay? There appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. I imagine so. Now, like I said earlier, Priests in the first century, in this time, they were a dime a dozen. There were more priests than there were jobs to do. And in several of the commentaries I read on this, said that because there were so many priests, if you were a priest in those days, you probably had, if you had that, you had one opportunity in your entire life to perform this task that Zechariah does here. So think about this. This is his big moment. 
This is the big day for Zechariah. We learn that he is selected for this one and only time to enter into the temple and offer incense. And it's on this big day during this important task that he goes in and he is visited by an angel. Amazing, right? And this is not just any angel. Look at verse 19. Skip down, look at it. The angel says, I am Gabriel. This is, this is Gabriel, the same angel that appeared to Daniel to prophesy of God's future redemption. The same angel that appeared to Mary to announce the birth of Christ. And we'll see here in a moment that he has another important message to deliver to Zechariah. A message of redemption. There's something else I want to mention here. Do you know the last record we have of Gabriel appearing to someone is in the book of Daniel. You remember in the book of Daniel, chapter 9, Gabriel appears to Daniel and he tells him of the coming of the anointed one, which is a messianic prophecy of the coming of Christ. And then Gabriel, as far as we know, doesn't appear again until right here in Luke chapter 1. He appears to Zechariah to announce the fulfillment of this prophecy that he gave hundreds of years before to Daniel. That's awesome. So notice here we have this common, everyday, average priest performing this task who has an incredible encounter and he is given an incredibly important message. Daryl Box says this in his commentary, great commentary on Luke. Look at this quote, I love this. He says, How appropriate for God to pick a moment of worship in a time when people recognize their need for cleansing from sin to announce the coming of his son. It is appropriate. So once again, we see here that Luke's Christmas story, it's, it's an unlikely story. We see that though God often treats kings as pawns, we also see delights in using unlikely people as key instruments for his kingdom work. Notice, not only do you have a timely appearance, but you also have an answered request. An answered request. Look at verse 13. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. So notice here how this angel gets really personal with Zechariah right off the bat. Not only does he go on to give him a magnificent message of redemption, but he also gives a personal word of comfort to this priest. He says, God has heard yours and your wife's prayer. Though, though God is about to do this incredible work of, of epic proportions through his son, though he's about to send his son to accomplish salvation for all who believe in him. He also takes time to concern himself with the personal struggles of this lowly priest. Isn't that amazing? He lets him know God has heard your prayer and he's going to answer it by giving you a son. And their son is not just any son. Notice Gabriel says he is going to be favored by God. So notice here, you have a timely appearance, an answered prayer. Third point here, a favored son. A favored son. Let's look at more at who this son is. Look at verses 14 and 15. 
You will have joy and gladness. Many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink. This is a Nazarite vow. I don't have time to go into all the details here. But, but like Samson, he was to be a lifelong Nazarite. He was special. He was set apart. John was holy unto God. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. That's very interesting. We learn from the Old Testament that the Spirit often came upon God's people at certain times for certain tasks. And here we learn that the Spirit of God is with John upon him in his mother's womb. And we're going to see the Spirit of God work in our next story through John leaping in his mother's womb. We're going to look at that, I believe, next week. Okay? Look at verse 15 again. Gabriel says, and he will be great before the Lord. Now, now, let me ask you this. Did their son grow up to be this powerful and impressive ruler who was looked to and loved by everyone? No. He did have a pretty big following later on. He was loved by God. But many thought as he grew up that he was crazy. And dangerous. Though Zachariah and Elizabeth were unlikely people, so was their son. I want you to see this. Though they're given this incredible promise in Luke chapter 1, though they're told that their son will be great before the Lord and is to be set apart for God's kingdom work while the Spirit is upon him from the womb, nothing really happens with their son for the next 30 years. When it comes time, for John to do this great work that God had created him and appointed for him to do. Many, again, they, they view him as being half crazy and dangerous. John the Baptist, like his dad and mom, was an unlikely instrument in God's kingdom story. He was from the backwoods. He ate weird food. He, he dressed funny, got under people's skin. He's a guy that Probably many of us, if we were around during this time, we might have distanced ourselves from him a bit. Yet he grows up to be great before the Lord. Jesus, during his earthly ministry, said of him, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Trace that all the way back to the Old Testament. All of those saints are in view here. None greater than John. He's the one who prepares the way for the Lord. So we learn here that this story, it's an unlikely story. We learn here that this unlikely guy from this unlikely family is the one God uses to prepare the world for his son. God answers the prayer of this insignificant and ordinary couple, gives them a son. God raises his son up, raises him up from obscurity, uses him to bear witness and prepare the way for God's Son. And folks, he works this way all throughout his word, all throughout history. He is at work in this way today, using unlikely people for his purposes and for his glory. Folks, God delights in using the insignificant and the ordinary for his kingdom purposes, and that should encourage all of us not to hurt your feelings, but are we not insignificant and ordinary by the world's standards? I mean, as far as I know, no one has paparazzi waiting for him out in the parking lot, right? Yeah. But get this. I do know this. While that's the case, 
This room is filled with people that God is focused on, that God is concerned with, the creator of all that is. This room is filled with people whom God wants to use for his purposes. So the story of Jesus' birth is a true story. It's an unlikely story, and it's a redemptive story. The story of Jesus' birth is a story of salvation. Listen to the work that Zachariah and Elizabeth's son, John, grows up to do. Gabriel tells Zechariah, and he, John, will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. Y'all know who that is, right? To turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. To make ready for the Lord a people prepared. In verses 16 and 17 Gabriel is telling Zechariah that his son is going to be used in a mighty way by God to prepare the way for the Lord. He compares him to Elijah, one of the greatest prophets in, in Scripture. He says, in the spirit of Elijah, John is going to prepare the hearts of the wicked for the Lord. Through his ministry, hearts will be changed. Relationships will be restored. How? How does he do this? Well, in the power of the Spirit, right? told that but he also does it by preaching sin and repentance preaching sin and repentance sin is the problem if we're not talking about sin we're avoiding the problem sin is the problem it's the problem that we all have we have all turned away from God. We have all gone at life on our own. And the only way for us to be made right with God, to be forgiven of sin, to be restored with Him, to be right with God vertically, to be right with one another horizontally, is if we repent of our sin and forsake that sin and look to King Jesus for rescue. It's the only way. It's the only way. That was the ministry of John. He was preparing them for this work to turn the children of Israel to the Lord their God, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Prepared for what? Prepared for Jesus. That's why Christ came. Christ came to make this work possible. He came to earth. He took on flesh. He lived among us. He gave his life for us so that our sins could be placed upon him and so that he could give us his righteousness in exchange for our rotten, sinful life. That's the Christmas message. It is. This is what Christmas is all about. When we think of Christmas, we should think of our sinfulness. It's the reason Christ came. When we think of Christmas, we should think of being in need of rescue. It's the reason Christ came. When we think of Christmas, we should think of the cross. It's the reason Christ came. We should be reminded of our sinfulness and our need of a Savior and our rescue in Christ. 
Jesus came to earth for this reason. And Zechariah proves this point perfectly that we're in need of rescue in verse 18. Look at what happens. After Gabriel gives Zechariah this wonderful promise, we're told, And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. Now think about this for a moment. You have this angel, okay? I should just stop there, right? Who scares Zechariah out of his skin. He's shaking in his boots. He appears to him, and he gives him this wonderful promise, and Zechariah responds with unbelief. That's unbelievable. But unbelief often is, isn't it? When we know who our God is and the work he's accomplished, when we respond in unbelief, it should be unbelievable. And it certainly is here. Well, Gabriel is going to deal with his unbelief. Look at it. He says, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. Verse 20. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. They're wondering, what is taking so long? And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth, surprise, surprise, should not surprise us, she conceived. And for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, verse 25, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. So notice here, this promise comes to pass, just like this messenger of God, Gabriel, said that it would. Yet Zechariah is punished for his unbelief. He's unable to speak. We'll learn more about him later on. We'll, we'll finish up nicely with Zechariah. We have a nice close to his story that we'll cover in, in a few weeks, okay? But let me end with this. Maybe you're here this morning, and if you're honest, you can relate to Zechariah. You're guilty of the sin of unbelief. Uh, we all are to some extent or another. But maybe you're here, and as you read this story, as you hear this story told each and every year about Jesus and the events surrounding his birth and his person and work, you refuse to believe that this actually took place. You just can't believe it. That God has become one of us in order to save us. This is you, I'm going to urge you this morning to rethink this position. Folks, this story is true. There was a time in history when God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, left the riches of heaven and stepped down into the world he created and became one of us in order to redeem us. Do you believe it? Do you believe it? Is Christ Lord of your life? Have you forsaken your sin? Have you bowed your knee to Him? 
Have you made Christ Lord of your life? While Christmas is to be a happy time, and it is this time of year, it should remind us also when we think of the reason Christ came, it should remind us of our sin. We should be broken over our sin. Christmas should remind us that Christ came to rescue us from our sin, to save us from God, from the wrath of God, to be restored to a right relationship with Him. Christ accomplished that work by becoming one of us, by living the life we failed to live in every way, He succeeded in every way. And He laid that perfect life down for us and endured the wrath of God for us. He was crushed by God for us so that we might not have to be crushed, so that we might be rescued and restored to God. And He took His life up again. He was raised on the third day and He ascended to the right hand of the Father on high. Our only hope of eternal life, of rescue. Are you trusting in this great work? Are you trusting in this wonderful Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, alone for your salvation? If not, now's the time, right now. I urge you today to respond by forsaking your sin and bowing the knee to King Jesus. Step up off the tiny throne of the kingdom of self and bow the knee to the King of kings and Lord of lords. Let's pray.